Hello, and thanks for listening to episode 49 of Shelf Love. Every week, we use romance novels as the text to explore identity, relationships, and the society that we live in. I'm Andrea Martucci, host of the Shelf Love podcast, and today I am joined by Katrina Jackson, erotica and erotic romance writer, professional historian, and frequent guest of the podcast. In this episode, we talk about scandal, why impermanence and entropy are the root cause for readers' desire for a happily ever after, or at least according to my theory, and how Katrina's research on black romance as liberation is coming along. We also discuss Blind Date with a Book Boyfriend by Lucy Eden, a true rom-com novella that turns the one-day courtship trope on its head. This is a fairly long episode, but I think it makes sense as one instead of breaking it up. However, if you can't listen to this all at once, there are definitely natural breaking points with musical interludes. The timestamps for those are in the show notes that you can view in your podcast app. I'm chagrined to say that this isn't even the entire conversation with Kat from this recording session, so probably within the next month or so, watch out for a shorter episode where we ruminate aloud about the modern romance canon and nostalgia. If you are not already signed up for the Shelf Love newsletter, I'd love it if you took a moment to do that either on my website, shelflovepodcast.com, or there's a direct link in the show notes. I'm trying to spend less time on social media and shift my podcast promotion focus to collecting and sharing information in a curated way in the newsletter. So if you enjoy the podcast, that is a really great place to stay up to date. Today is June 30th, 2020, and I'm not sure exactly when this is going to happen, but probably late summer, I will be taking a wee break from releasing new episodes so that I can gear up for a second season. I'm definitely going to be reevaluating the structure of the podcast, thinking about new guest ideas and topic ideas, all sorts of things, and I'd love your feedback. If you listen to the podcast, you hopefully know that I am really focused on iterating and growing as a person, as a reader, and in this case, as a podcaster. So I do truly, truly appreciate honest feedback, even if it is along the lines of episodes you generally aren't that interested in. Of course, I also really want to hear about the episodes that resonated with you so that I can figure out what the secret sauce is and add more of that to season two. So if you have thoughts or ideas, feel free to email them to me at andrea at shelflovepodcast.com, or you can keep your eye out for a survey where I will ask some guided questions. You know I love a good survey. I'll be sending that out via my email newsletter, so if that's something you'd be interested in responding to, please do sign up for my newsletter so you don't miss out. And now, without further ado, on to the episode. Katrina, you joined me in multiple episodes before, and and we talk a lot, but just to remind people if they want to catch up with you, they can definitely listen to episode 17 where we covered an unconditional freedom and you guided us with your historical expertise through Alyssa Cole's fine work. We've also talked before about polyamory and financial conversations <laughs> and, you know, happily ever after versus HFN. And I think we're going to pick up on various threads from our previous conversations in this conversation. But what have you been up to lately? It is currently May 30th, 2020. <laughs> I've mostly been sleeping. That's a great thing to do. I've been learning how to garden, but very lazily, like I do everything else. I have kale growing now and jalapenos in my kitchen. Sounds great. I've been 
randomly buying my house, which was not a thing I was supposed to be doing now. And then for the past couple of days, I've been stress sleeping because of all of the protests happening. And I'm very sort of sad and terrified for protesters. Yep. Same. So what's a book that you read lately that you loved? (laughs) I haven't read a lot in this time period, like a lot of people, but I recently finished American Queen by Sierra Simone, which is the first book in her new Camelot series, which is intensely ridiculous (laughs) and scandal-esque. And for at least 50% of it, I was just like, what the hell is happening here? And why am I still reading this book? And then the last like, 40% I was like oh okay like that's why I'm still reading this book her sex scenes are amazing and then I read Barbarian's Prize Mm -hmm. um, on the recommendation of Danny Lacey who does Ice Planet Pod which is nutty (laughs) did you know that I was on Ice Planet Pod yeah I did yeah and I I love so I was telling her so I was on a recent episode which is why I read that we talked about a different book but she, or I will be on a, an episode. Oh, I was like, I was like, how did I miss this? <laughs> Sorry, we just recorded it, and we were talking about a different book. And I was talking about how I started reading the series because she was doing the podcast, and she had interesting things to say about it. And then I read a few books, and then I just skipped ahead and read all the books with black characters. But I missed one, and she told me, and so I went back and read Barbarian's Prize, which is now my favorite Ice Planet Barbarian's book. Okay, well, I'm not an expert on Ice Planet Barbarians. I literally just read the one. She's the only expert. Danny is the only expert. <laughs> she's, she's, she's the world expert on you know, Ruby Dixon's Ice Planet Barbarians and yeah. related she's series. She's the only expert, literally. <laughs> so it was a fun conversation. So I've read those two books. And speaking of, what is it, American Queen? Mm-hmm. I'm really curious about that series. <laughs> Keep that laughing. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, I mean, this the scandal esque aspects of it are really interesting. Like, I, I, you know, I put a tweet out the other day where I was basically like, so first of all, I'm a huge marketing nerd and used to teach marketing, and so I have like all these little like, you're not measuring if you're not marketing, like <laughs> things like that that I just drop on the regular. But one of them is Michael Porter, who is a guru in the marketing world says the essence of strategy is deciding what not to do. And okay. I mean, and it's basically like you can't do everything. Choose choose what you really want to focus on and do well. And then you have to intentionally let go of some other things. And one of the things I personally in my life have let go of is this idea that I can consume all media. Like mm-hmm. I have a big enough problem in just within like romance books wanting to consume everything so I've intentionally just sort of like I'm I just don't have time for tv like it's Mm. it's not like I don't like tv I'm sure there are a million fantastic shows out there I just don't have the time to like invest in that plus do other things I want to do yeah so I never watch scandal but you know I'm not like living in a cave somewhere (laughs) I know I know enough about it but yeah I think Kennedy Ryan's The Kingmaker also has the scandal-esque vibe. Yeah, that makes sense. And I'm curious what it is about that 
sort of storyline. It's it's like power. It's people in power. Like yeah. So do you know that I'm doing a scandal rewatch right now? No. Okay, so this is all accidental. So I was a huge scandal fan season one, like huge scandal fan. And I, I was a huge Shonda Rhimes fan at the time too. And then I, at some point, just stopped watching because the show, so when it started, it was like a short series, like very much based on the British model. So like less than like 10 or 12 episodes and a really tight sort of storytelling model, great music. I loved it. And then every season after that, it got more episodes. So by the time it ended, it had like 23 episodes, like a traditional American show. And I, for the longest time, complained to my friends who truly did not care. And yet I still complain to them that the sort of ruinous scandal is too many episodes per season, whatever. And also other things. And a lot of them watched it. And I finally was like, well, when it's over, I'm going to rewatch it. So I'm now rewatching it and trying to finish the show since it has recently ended. And what I'm realizing as it becomes more and more ridiculous, that that's probably the point of why people love it so much is the ridiculousness. Like in the beginning, the thing I loved is the sort of realism of it. And then there's a point at which Liv is kidnapped and they're bidding for her. And I'm like, well, all right, you know, we've jumped the shark. (laughs) But I remember that a lot of my friends had a lot of stuff to say about that episode. So I think some of it is the people in power. And then some of it is the sort of political, like telenovela kind of stuff too. Yeah. This is one of those things where when it's explored in the romance genre, We like it, but then when you think about, you know, people in those positions of power in the real world, I'm like, ugh. It's actually a really rough show to rewatch in this current moment for so many reasons. One, there's this whole sort of Republican thing happening, like Fitz is a Republican as a characters. And it's not that they're Republicans that is the problem. It is hearing the way that the writers chose to write them as good Republicans, that is actually really difficult to deal with in this moment. And also, oddly enough, how many things seem a little prescient. They're not, but I mean, the episode, the last episode I watched before I took a bit of a break because it's ridiculous, (laughs) was about an American woman marrying a um, European prince and well, then she's murdered. Oh, but yeah. yeah, so that didn't happen to Megan. That is not going to happen to Megan. We are not speaking that into 2020 existence. No. But no. the conversation about how she felt, because the press was really mean to her, how she felt sort of like she was living in a you know fishbowl and that people were sort of judging her and and in these very ways, it felt very reminiscent of Meghan Markle, and that was very difficult to to watch. Not because I'm like. Well, I am actually a Meghan Markle fan. I was before she married Harry. But it was really difficult to watch that episode where she ends up dying and realizing that there's just sort of no... The writers very clearly understood, you know, the stakes of what, like, for instance, in this case, intense media presence can cause, right? So Mm -hmm. the Queen was evil in that one. So, I mean, that also felt very accurate. So, (laughs) (laughs) Well... And that's making me think – so I just – so speaking of never watching TV, I did watch Contagion the other night. Did you ever see that? I've never seen that. It's – oh, God, 2011. It's a it's – it actually has, like, a star-studded cast, like, Kate Winslet and, like, Matt Damon and 
Lawrence Fishburne. No, oh, you don't watch movies, just TV. Yeah, I watch TV, no movies. Sorry, when I say watch TV, I'm doing air quotes. I mean, watch something on my television. Oh. <laughs> Anyways, Contagion, it's about, like, a contagious event, this this virus that is really wreaking havoc on the world. And, and look, there's a reason yeah. it's, like, you know, kind of at the top right now is because people are like, oh, what's this movie? Right. It is so prescient, like all the plot points you're like oh and then somebody's like peddling a drug that actually isn't helpful but people start hoarding and people in government unwilling to make hard choices because it's going to mess up the economy like like boom boom boom. that's hard i don't know how you how did you get through that i think (laughs) the way i get through most things in life by dissociating my emotions from what's happening this is sadly relatable <laughs> oh my god yeah mm. i have emotions but i i you just don't process them i'm like let me examine this logically and then it will make sense to me i think it's kind of strange to think about well the historian in me is like well nothing is new right, right. so the sort of, I mean, the scandal episode, they're clearly pulling from Princess Diana, right? The fact that my, like, connection is her son and his life is sort of incidental, right? And then Contagion, like, we, we've had, you know, like, pandemics and before, so it's not, like, nothing is new. But it is kind of interesting to think about, like, just a year ago or a few years ago, how, for probably most of us Americans, none of this felt sort of safely fictional. Yeah, right, exactly. Like, like, oh, ha, 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 those things might have happened in the past, but... Yeah. Again, again. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I will say, when I read American Queen, I mostly ignored all the politics. <laughs> I was like, I don't, I don't really care about that. And I think Sierra Simone writes really great sort of interpersonal dynamics, and that's definitely why I like reading her. So I, because a lot of it is about war, the politics and stuff is about mm-hmm. war. And like colonialism, and I was like, "Oop, don't want to do that." So, I, I mostly ignore that. <laughs> it's too much right now. Yeah. So, speaking of the pandemic, there was supposed to be a really exciting conference in April, the Researching the Romance Conference at EGSU, which stands for Bowling Green, Green State <laughs> University. Thank you. <laughs> the one in Ohio, not Kentucky. Right, yeah, the one in Ohio, not Kentucky. (laughs) That will matter to, like, four people. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't want to disappoint those four people, so thank you. (laughs) So, you know, I, like, showed you the handwritten list I took from, like, I went through the agenda of this conference, and basically I'm interested in everything, where basically I literally just handwrote the agenda and then, like, put stars next to everything. But you were going to present and, you know, hopefully Steve Amidown, who was a guest on the podcast and is the pop culture archivist at um, BGSU's Brown Pop Culture Library and was the organizer of this event. Hopefully Steve will be able to organize something at some point to to kind of like do this. But can you tell us a little bit about what you were going to present? And how it relates to your work and like maybe in the context of your larger project around, I always like mess up the wording of this. So I'll just let you say it. I I will also mess up the wording of this. It's all right. So I was in my actual 
life and my legal name going to write about or going to give a paper on thinking about Beverly Jenkins's work in the sort of larger context of Black feminist texts. So one of the things, like I said, last time I was here, I have always been interested in like love and community and my advisors hated it. And so I avoided it for a long time, but I kept running into Black feminists writing about love in very interesting ways. And Bell Hooks sort of talks about really early in her career, she has like four books on love, but really actually like decades earlier in her career, what she argues is that scholars and activists need to center love as a way of reimagining the present and the future. And so I took that um, and I am taking that as kind of a starting point to think about how we can reimagine love, but thinking about the past, right? And so I wanted to look at Beverly Jenkins's book, sort of a selection of her work to think about what historians can learn about centering love in the dissemination of historical narratives. And for me, that's sort of what I'm always trying to do. So I'm always trying to get my students away from thinking only about like politics and like the, you know, sort of great man history, but also to sort of start getting them to humanize people in the past, like, and not just like black people, but like people in general, right? So if we can humanize like presidents, then we can be comfortable saying this president sucked, right? Because mm-hmm. lots of presidents suck, right? Or if we can humanize sort of communities or like working class people, we can stop focusing, for instance, on like large businesses. We can start thinking about the people who are in the mines or the people who are doing the blue collar work. Like those are also people who contribute to history. And some of that empathetic work is about centering love, but because you can also then look at the things that that matter to people, not that matter to like historical processes. So the things that matter to people, the things they usually, for instance, that are mentioned in their obituaries are their familial connections, not for instance, how long they worked at IBM, right? Mm-hmm. So, so thinking about love as just as significant a motivator in historical processes as like politics or economics. And I wanted to look at Beverly Jenkins's books to do that. Although by the time the conference was rolling around, I had also sort of thrown Alyssa Cole <laughs> into that. Why not? <laughs> Why not? Because what I'd done, this, no one cares about this but me, but what I'd done is between the two of them, I'd covered most of the significant milestones of African-American history from the American Revolution through the Civil Rights Movement, which is a survey I was, I'm supposed to be teaching in the fall. So there was literally room in all of the sort of major moments to drop in a historical romance novel which is like so geeky and cool. So the class you're teaching, are you going to have your students read the romance novels? Yeah, we're reading just one. I'm trying to be conscious about like money and stuff. We're reading Alyssa Cole's Be Not Afraid. Be Not Afraid. What time period does that take place in? That's the American Revolution. It's her novella from the American Revolution, yeah. So you were talking about bell hooks and I have a book order for All About Love, New Visions by Bell Hooks in the mail. Yay. It's coming. Basically, whenever you mention books on Twitter, I just very quietly go over to like a books <laughs> and like. Don't do that. I recommend books a lot on Twitter. <laughs> well, sometimes Not I just it. put them on my Goodreads list. Yeah, that's smart. Yeah. So actually that book. 
I just finished rereading it hilariously, which is probably why I was talking about it again. But yeah, part of what I love about that book, and I'm trying to reconcile this now. So since I couldn't present the paper at the rom-con, the goal was always to turn that paper into an article. So I'm now at the point where I'm like, well, I guess you're just skipping, you know, point A and let's just move to point B. And so I'm trying to like reconcile that into an article and I would have had to sort of struggle through this process anyway. But part of what I'm reconciling is that I want to talk about love, which is not actually talking about romance novels. So and I don't know that I sort of know what to make of that difference. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the research actually Bell Hooks has a chapter on romance novels is not particularly favorable, but (laughs) it's actually it's, it's. it's not favorable in ways that I think are actually that I actually process. So when you read it, we can talk about okay, it. But I right, process yeah, as a sort of challenge to how romance novels tend to present love at that time. The book is also maybe like a decade or so old. But it's interesting to think about how you can have a, a conversation about love that isn't really about that doesn't make an easy conversation about romance novels because Romance is concerned with the HEA, which obviously implicates love, but it doesn't necessarily have to, right? I think there are lots of people who are writing um, or who have written HEAs where love isn't the thing that matters the most in telling the story. Mm -hmm. Um, It is a relationship dynamic or conflict or something like that. But not all romance novels have a lot of profound things to say about love itself, right? And that's... well. Okay, so this is this is so relevant to okay. I think first of all, I wonder if it's because romance novels in addition to being a genre that kind of has created its own conventions that are they they sort of represent what people want in reality but in a sort of artistic form, let's say. So they're not trying to represent love exactly as it exists. They're also primarily focused on courtship. Yes, which is different from like happily ever after at the end of a romance novel you get to the point at which they're like and now we're gonna settle into loving each other for the rest of our lives which is what love is but that's not on the page so much in romance novels yeah i mean and i don't i mean this might be controversial and so if anyone's gonna come for me like come for me with like you know the spirit of discussion because I'm trying to work through this myself because I think there are absolutely some romance novels that I've read where you are watching characters sort of build a loving relationship but I wouldn't I've read so many more where love really isn't it's an it's an expectation that it's there but we don't necessarily see evidence of it and part of what bell hooks is saying that I'm taking as instructive for this paper is that because the whole book is about the messages that people get about love in media and in, in lots of different kinds of media, which is why she talks about romance novels. And she says the message that you get in media is that love is either easy or it is always a battle. And she says, if it's easy, then we ignore that you have to put in work to sort of um, combine your life or build a life with another person. But if it is always a battle, then we can ignore or we can miss the ways that that might not be love, it might be abuse, right? So there has to be a kind of balance here. And I think, and I would say too, not to like cape for her or anything, 
But I think that a lot of the time, what scholars are doing when they're making these sort of disparaging conversations about romance novels is they're talking about romance novels in a particular moment, right? And I think it would be hard to argue that romance novels in the 80s or 90s or before are not sort of exactly what she's saying, right? So when I was at the BGSU pop culture library looking through issues of Romantic Times, literally like the first issue of the magazine or the newsletter talks about rape and historical fiction. And they don't they don't have euphemisms for it now, which is what people have now. They sort of say, oh, you know, this is, you know, Dubcon or something like that. Like literally the reviewer for historical novels says he rapes her three times. The hero rapes the heroine three times, right? Mm-hmm. So there's no illusion there of what's happening. And so Bell Hooks, I think, is very much talking about romance in a particular time period. And I don't necessarily think that she's wrong in, in the terms of we don't see love as she also defines it, which she does provide provide a definition of love that I think is we don't see that in those texts yeah I'm guilty of forgetting this myself sometimes that like I I try to be really gentle with older romance novels because I understand that they got us to where the genre is now right and you you know I, I know you listened to my conversation with Dr. Maria de Blasi about kind of the the baby steps in terms of let's say even white women in the 1970s like (laughs) proclaiming like I want to have some sexual desire and have a story told from my point of view and like how that kind of had to be within the boundaries of the patriarchy so so I try to be gentle while also kind of acknowledging like yeah they're they're not great (laughs) yeah you you get to be gentle (laughs) and I also think and we're gonna talk about nostalgia I think a lot of romance readers want to be gentle because these books mean or have meant something to them. And I respect that. I am not a lifelong romance reader. So on the one hand, I don't care about being gentle. But also I think in the context of me sort of learning about romance in the archive is that I can't be, and I teach my students this, I can't be gentler than the historical sort of people were, right? So if romance reviewers and romance readers are calling it rape in 1983. It is rape. That is what it is. So we don't get to say 30 years later, well, it wasn't that it was rape. And it's like, well, no, like they knew what it was. We can argue about what it was trying to do, which is why I really like that conversation you had with Dr. DeBlasi, right? Like what are the confines in which it was created? What are the sort of fantasies that this is meant to, or what are the, frustrations that the fantasies are meant to sort of process, right? I think that's actually a super valuable conversation. That doesn't mean it's not rape, and it doesn't oh. mean they don't understand it as rape. Exactly. And so exactly. that sort of rings true for other things, right? Like when Felicia Grossman was talking on Twitter about Georgette Hare, right? You know, she's pointing out that not only is there anti-Semitism in her books and that she's writing out various people in history, right? The sort of romance reader conversation usually is that she didn't know. And Felicia Grossman says, no, actually, she did know. And we know that she knew because we have her papers. Yeah. And for me, that's the like the two things can be true. Right. That we've created conventions that, oh, I should write this down or I'll just listen to this episode. (laughs) But that's sort of the, the point is that maybe each romance novel isn't having the conversation about love because we're so sort of hell bent on having a conversation about who gets and who does not get to be included, right? 
because so part of what bell hooks is saying is that like love does not know like you know race or you know all of that stuff we all don't learn how to love into you know sort of you know the same right in, in terms of our our cultures but also our family dynamics whatever but that at sort of its face or at its base level you can create a definition of love that is more or less universal right mm-hmm. but the minute you start sort of saying, well, love looks like a man and a woman, a cis man and a cis woman together, well, then you start sort of taking away some of the necessary universality of love, right? If you start sort of saying these people aren't here in this historical time period, or as Miss Bev has famously said, that, you know, you have white readers who didn't realize that Black people loved in the same way as, have you never heard her say that? I, I've not heard her say that exactly, I, No. She literally said, I don't know why I said that so cagely, by the way. Sorry. No, I haven't uh, heard her say that. Please go on. Yeah. So I'm not actually think she I heard her say it at the first BGSU rom-con, which was like 2018. And she said that a reader sent her a letter, you know, sort of saying how much she loved Miss Bev's books. And in the letter, and I think this was actually printed in one of the articles about it, too. But in the letter, the reader says, I didn't realize that Black people loved the same way as white people did. Well, and so for me, and that's sort of what I'm struggling with in the article and trying to create a kind of a structure to talk about the importance of the historical romance novels that I'm, I want to analyze, is that, well, the minute you start saying that love, love looks a particular way or has particular people in a particular configuration, well, then you do start making it seem as if love is, there is no universal here, right? Or there can be no universal here. Or that to show, to broaden who gets to write romance or who gets to be, you know, characters in romance, they have to fit into a particular kind of storytelling archetype. And I really struggle with that. And I am struggling with that, both as a romance reader and writer, and then also as a researcher, I do think there is something specific about African-American Black romance that we lose when we start trying to say that, oh, all love is love, which I know romance writers and readers love to say when talking about diversity that, you know, love looks the same. And I don't actually think that it does. I think that there are sort of base components, which is what Bell Hooks is talking about, that you have to have to have a loving relationship or to sort of, you know, she calls it a love ethic. But I don't think that we all express that the same because that is also in some ways cultural and contextual right yeah as you were saying that that's definitely what I was thinking that there are different cultural expectations like everybody every group you know in that all love is love have their own cultural expectations that they're bringing to the table and I mean I think that's definitely something I've noticed in you know black indie romance is that I think there are different like types i i i'm putting this in air quotes like types of relationships or like expectations in relationships that are not like this like that that are not necessarily speaking to like the love being different but the expression being different or like kind of the range it exactly and that and that that's maybe more accurately what i'm trying to sort of think about in the many larger projects i keep saying i'm doing (laughs) that it's the the you know I, i I don't love, I, I hate the phrase love is love. I hate it when marriage equality was using it. I think it is not particularly useful, but, or it's at least reductive. But I, yeah, because I think what we lose then is the expression, right? So it sort of matters, for instance, the ways in which 
and, and you can see similar expressions over time, right? So I, it, it really sort of matters to me in, for instance, Be Not Afraid, which I'm using this. So this is a preview of the article. But part of the reason I decided to include Alyssa Cole is because there's this sort of really kind of lovely, careful section where Kate, the female main character, is vaguely reflecting on what is very obviously rape and sexual abuse in her past. And she says, you know, everything she, and I tweeted about this, she says everything Kate knew of love, she wanted to essentially never hear the word again. But she wondered what it would be like to be loved by a man like Elijah Hutton. Mm -hmm. Sutton? His last name is Sutton. And for me, that is sort of the crux of the argument, not just of the article, but of the larger project on Black romance, that it, it does mean something for, in this case, a formerly enslaved woman trying to find her way to freedom to understand that it could be different to be loved by a formerly enslaved man trying to find his way to freedom. And then the fact that that could be enough is their granddaughter. Well, clearly, right? Like, and she then is trying to figure out a way to love this woman who she has fallen in love with. And that is its own kind of freedom, right? So that you can sort of see something, at least in my opinion, happening in Black romance that is looking at not just the expression of love, which I think is specific, but also in sort of what it means in the larger context of, which is what the the conference paper was supposed to be about, what freedom looks like for Black people throughout history, right? Like Mm -hmm. what it means for enslaved people to access freedom, but access also a sort of loving community as well, or what it means for, again, one of Alyssa Cole's other novellas, which I'm also blanking on the name. And I think I told you I'm sharpest in the morning. These are lies. But what it means, it's the one set during the civil rights movement, which is actually quite beautiful. And it's an interracial romance. Have you read that one? I started reading it. (laughs) And and it's not like I stopped because I wasn't enjoying it. I just, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it happened. Distraction. So the the point is just in that situation, it's it's a romance between African-American women and a Jewish-American man. And so what it means in that context to sort of love, to find love with this other person who is marginalized and maybe has, you know, more privilege in some contexts and, you know, not enough in others, right? But to sort of make fighting for your mutual sort of liberation a center of your loving relationship. That, and not every romance has that to say about a sort of building relationship. And so I think there's a specificity here in the way the way that I think some romance authors and certainly a lot of black romance authors are thinking about what love means in a larger societal context it's not let us dream is it yeah it is it is okay all right the other one set in new york within the south asian man is also fabulous (laughs) i love her novellas (laughs) so i wonder like what you're speaking to is there's like sort of the promise of the romance genre and media generally to show people different ways that maybe they have not experienced in their life experience, it is possible. What's problematic is that the media is largely controlled by gatekeepers who privilege a particular point of view and particular stories that are deemed to be exemplars of courtship or relationships or or you know i mean part of that of course is like things that are interesting like you know where who do they think the audience is and what they're going to be interested in which 
Yeah, which by and large, it, it's not it's not even just about race, right? It's about class. Like how many, you know, Jane Austen adaptations do we need, right? Because it's this idea that love is more interesting when we're talking about rich people who have access to like, you know, stomp through muddy fields or like exactly. parties where they, right? Like, yeah. Like, look how poor she is. She doesn't have to do anything all day and she only has three servants. But as soon as her father dies, yeah, no, it's right. So there was that thing on Twitter about like how rich people were in Austin novels. And my friends and I were like, did people not know? (laughs) Was that not clear? Yeah. Like all they do all day is sleep and read and get dressed. Yeah. Which is, you know, I think also too, part of what you're, part of what at least I see in certainly the larger kind of body of work of of Beverly Jenkins, which is huge, (laughs) is this sort of commitment to showing people across actually a a pretty large spectrum of class and racial presentation, and also across the country in different time periods, which makes all of that sort of significant. So it always matters to me, for instance, how many formerly enslaved people Beverly Jenkins presents, right? Or in Alyssa's case, and be not afraid, like literally enslaved in the moment, but, but, you know, trying to access freedom through the war. It matters to me how often Beverly Jenkins seems to like presenting a rich person with a poor person, but is which I know romance loves period, but I always feel like she has like a sort of a bit of a, a sort of twist on that, right? So she very often has rich women, which I think people forget, right? Mm-hmm, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. She has a lot of outlaws <laughs> who who are maybe they've been brought low when the story starts. I just finished Wild Sweet Love. And so there's a, a female outlaw who spends a bit of time in jail <laughs> and then meets a rich man, a banker. Yeah. So there's this sort of commitment, I think, in her work to sort of presenting Black people across like various class presentations, which we don't always get in historical romance, certainly. Mm-hmm. I just talked about some of Rose Lerner's work, and she has some Jewish characters in historical settings and, yeah. and is doing some stuff there. But she has also done some interesting work with class mm. and, you know, people in the working class, particularly. But but yes, I, I would be interested in hearing recommendations about anybody else other than Beverly Jenkins, who has who has displayed such a commitment to kind of showing the, the the range of classes and time periods, and I'm sure there are more. Like I definitely don't want to sort of ever say it's just this one person. Only doing Beverly it. Jenkins did this. Only Beverly Jenkins does all the things you want her to do. Read her now. Well, it's her uh, and Alyssa Cole. Only those two. Alyssa, only those two. I do think what ends up happening is that we don't sell these stories like that right so you can have the sort of rich boy poor girl in the marketing for like a white romance but for a black romance like those other things don't exist right or for like a queer romance it's as if those things don't exist when sometimes when they are being sort of published or when they are being recommended so you lose all of the great context because I read yeah a a bit of Rose Lerner a bit of Courtney Milan and they do some similar things where they are presenting people across class and very interesting and and sometimes they feel like off the beaten path kind of kind of story setups but when you see them recommended it's just oh this is a queer romance or oh this is a uh romance with like people of color or whatever it is right or with jewish characters and so it's as if nothing else matters and that's kind of what i'm trying to get at with 
one of these 8,000 projects I said I'm, I'm doing where I'm trying to get, get at that there's so much layering here happening because there's a commitment here to presenting history. I'm only studying Black historical romance. There's a commitment here to presenting a vastness of history as opposed to a myopic view of history. And I'm going to quote Fumi, Fumi B, who in my episode, I remember this very clearly, was talking about Black people being allowed the dynamicy of white characters in romance, how mm-hmm. how that's often limited, I think, particularly in traditional publishing. Until recently, I'd say that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I guess I'll say, like, I don't recommend books. I only talk about books that I think people should read. Like, <laughs> but I don't, I, but I don't, like, review books. But, yeah. but I really try to be cognizant of not pigeonholing books by, like, their marginalizations when when describing them. I I think one thing I'm particularly aware of is when I talk about women loving women or or male male romance, like not defining them like that is like the first thing I mention. Like, you know, and I'm probably guilty of doing this, you know. Yeah, we all are. Absolutely. And that's that's the thing, right? It's like sometimes that is what people want, right? Like, and, and I do actually place parameters. So one of the things I had to stop doing for this exact reason is I, I stopped asking for recommendations on Twitter because I felt like I had to then come back and say, don't recommend all white, you know, het romance to me. I don't want it. Please don't do it. But that was because the, if I had a request for like billionaire romance, I would get only white romance, right? But if I said, oh, I want like a black romance, I would get all over the shop. I would get a contemporary, I'd get a paranormal, I get, you know, it was like everything because what mattered, but if I said I want, hey, paranormal, I wouldn't get any diverse books. And so you're right, like there is this way that we sort of go marginalization forward in conversations about book recommendations, certainly, but even in conversations about what the books are doing that I find really frustrating. In the paper, I'm, I'm going marginalization forward because I'm trying to make a very specific argument, but Otherwise, yeah, I agree. I, I tried not to do that in recommendations. I also don't recommend books. I, I mostly will tell people when I'm not recommending a book that I've just read. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to talk about this next topic because I know we've talked a lot about kind of like publicly and privately about skepticism of HEA or maybe generally like I think you and I both agree that what romance tends to call happily for now, I think we both believe generally should just be called happily ever after because the point is we just need to believe that they're good for now. Yeah. Well, because, yeah, the skepticism is that, and I think I said it when we recorded the first time, that I read all HEAs as as happy for nows only because unless you're telling me that they're together until they die. I don't have to believe that. And it's not a requirement for me. I believe that they're happy now. And if the epilogue is five years later, they're happy five years later. And that is literally all I need. Because happily ever after would suggest to me that I, I'm, you know, I'm going to get that story. But it also flattens again what Bell Hooks is saying that that love is a struggle, right? So there are going to, in 20 years, there are going to be different people. Those kids they keep having in the epilogue will grow up and leave their homes and they will have to renegotiate their relationship then, which by the way, please write that story. Like you can check in on any any couple or any relationship 10, 20 years later and I'm going to eat that up. 
But mm-hmm. if you're not going to give me that check in 20 years later, I just assume they're happy for right now. And that's literally all I need to be happy as well. Okay. All right. So actually, so now I'm remembering, I think this is actually where you differ a bit from how a lot of people tend to conceptualize romance because I'm probably closer to your thinking about it where I don't know I don't think too hard about it I don't think too hard about it which is why HFN works right me and me too like I'm like okay cool awesome like (laughs) but I think some people have a very rigid definition in their head and I think I know why I think I figured it out Okay, I and I want to acknowledge that I figured this out with the help of lots of other people. And maybe and you know what, maybe somebody else figured this out before. But if they have, I don't know about it. And I'd love for you to point me in the direction of a a resource. So I created a poll on Twitter in early April 2020, asking if you had to generalize romance novels are essentially about and then I had three options, love, identity, power, and something else, meaning like, you know, fill in the blank. 46.5% of 583 votes, by the way. That's a, that's a pretty good sample. I mean, like, if if any data scientists want to come to me for this data, please, you know, get in contact, Andrea at shelfloofpodcast.com. Yeah, so like almost half said it's about love. About a third said identity. 11% said power. And then I got a range of results in the something else that I will now talk about. So I will I will put my Venn diagram that I have drawn in the, in the show notes. But I have created a model for what I think romance the genre is about. And this is a working model. And so basically it's three circles called power, relationships, and identity that create a Venn diagram. And then there's a circle around it called hope, resolution, emotional satisfaction, aka happily ever after. Mm -hmm. And so what happened was after I put that out there, a lot of people said hope. Like they were like, no, they're about hope. And I was like, that makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I guess I was like, okay, I think you're right. I think that like when you get way, way down into the root of it, it's about hope. But then what comprises that hope? And Mm -hmm. I think that's where relationships and power overlap to have equality. So, you know, a relationship is like two or more people relating to each other. And then if their power is equal, then they have they have sort of like found equality or like some balance there, right? Mm-hmm. Power and identity overlap to create agency. So, you know, we all kind of like have our own sense of self And if we feel like we have power to express Mm -hmm. ourselves, we have agency. Or even just, well, so the historian would use agency to mean that you have literally like agency over your own life, right? So that you have the power to like make a choice about a job or that you have the power to push back against, you know, some kind of aggressive system or person in your life. So yeah, I mean, that could go lots of different ways. Or that even that you can express your identity, like, in certain ways, right? Like, Mm. it's it's just a broader term, yeah. Mm -hmm. Which actually does make sense in context. Right. And then relationships overlap with identity. And somebody gave me a better word for this, which is, I wrote scene, but somebody provided validation. I was like, yes, that's what it is. Mm. 
So basically the fact that in this relationship with another person, your identity is validated. Sure. And then in the center, we have trust. So trust is the combination of basically within relationships, power and identity. And when you find equality, you have agency and you are validated. You in a relationship have trust. And when all of those things are present, people feel hopeful and have a sense of resolution <laughs> and and i think that getting back to this idea of like why do people not like hfn or like the concept that this doesn't just continue on forever and ever and ever is it messes up that sense of like the future being better and like permanently better oh oh okay so look that actually makes a whole bunch of sense in terms of a few things one it makes sense to me why a lot of romance readers are very like hardcore about an hea over like any other kind of resolution it also makes sense why i don't really care um, because <laughs> So, and I, I can't remember if I talked to you about this or not, but I actually spent an inordinate amount of time talking to my students about how history is not progressive, meaning that it doesn't always get better. Mm -hmm. And so the narrative doesn't always get better. So there is, I, you know, I mostly teach modern U.S. history courses. So I start from reconstruction and I go through the present. And simply because of time constraints, I and a lot of other historians ends up sort of stopping around the 1970s. So we stop after the resolution of the civil rights movement and maybe into second wave feminism. And so the unintended narrative that that creates is that history has gotten better. Like we've gone from the end of slavery and rights given and then taken away to those rights being reaffirmed. And so students get an, an unintended, positive, progressive narrative, which is why I stopped doing that and I started going to the 1980s <laughs> so that I could give them a quick rundown of Reagan and the conservative backlash because history is always, you know, a little bit better, a, little, a lot worse, right? Or something like that, right? So an ATA for me that assumes resolution is the thing here that I wasn't thinking of when I when it mattered to me. The idea that all the bad things are in their past and they don't have to sort of deal with anything or all the conflicts later is external, not internal, right? Because they have done all of this work to create trust and equality and validation in their relationship. But relationships don't work like that. Like people grow and they should grow and change. So their, you know, the history of this relationship that we're, you know, reading in a romance should, at least for me, it should follow the same model of like, you know, the historical narrative, which is that things get a little bit better. And sometimes there's a, a wrench in the system or something like that. And you have to sort of struggle through that again, right, to sort of end back up in if, if it's an HEA, they'll have to sort of struggle through that to sort of end back up in not even the same relationship per se, it could be you know, a relationship that looks slightly different. At the end of Let Us Dream, look, this is about another book, but here I am talking about Alyssa Cole again. But at the end of Let Us Dream, that couple is dealing with infertility issues. Mm -hmm. And part of what I love about that epilogue is it one is not the, and now she's like happy and pregnant and she specifically turns that on its head, which I love. But what it also shows is, a hint here 
I would actually buy that novella as an HEA because it shows a hint here and they have all these other relationship problems. And so the epilogue actually shows you how they are going to deal with these problems in their relationship. So then I can buy that the next time there's a problem, right? They can they have deal the tools. with tools. Right. Okay. And I don't every romance relationship has, they, they show you the tools that they need to for an HEA. You use the phrase, the history of this relationship. And I think it's really interesting to think of reading a romance novel as the history of a relationship, like, or at least a slice of the history, let's say, because yeah. then they're, they're going to like go on and keep writing history. And I think it's right. really interesting your perspective as a historian who studies literally seeing the same or variations of the same bad shit happening over and over and over again. And yeah. how, you know, we're, it's not like we're on an up and to the right climb right. in terms of like things are getting better. Yeah. But I think that this is the, uh, I want to use the word drug that romance <laughs> is. No, use it. Go with it. Okay. So I have talked a lot before about having gone to a lot of therapy and I'm not, I'm not currently in therapy because I developed my tool set to the point where my therapist and I agreed that like I was good for at least this point in my life, but one of the things I was thinking about, so, okay, so this is, this is a bit of a story. I was listening to the Happier um, with Gretchen Rubin podcast and Dan Harris was on and he's a bit of a meditation proponent and he was talking about how meditation, I'm going to mess up exactly what he said, but meditation, something like how it's constantly focusing on the present mm -hmm. and trying to get past the feeling of hopelessness that entropy and impermanence causes us. And when I think about what anxiety is to me, it is entirely about the fact that I buy a pair of socks and I think that pair of socks is going to last. I'm like, ha, ah, I've got a pair of socks. And then like, God damn it, I lose a sock or the sock gets dirty. And then yeah. I have to buy more socks. Like, I thought I solved this problem. Right. And not like nothing is permanent. Things are constantly breaking down. Like relationships need constant work to tend. Gardens need constant tending to grow your kale. But yeah. Yeah. Well, like the seasons, like you yeah. grow things yeah. and then they die. And like, right. you know, like that is life. That is anxiety producing because yeah. you never reach resolution. And I think that the reason, the core reason, I think I solved it. <laughs> yeah. The reason people like romance is because it creates a fantasy of resolution where yeah. things are not constantly degrading and falling right. apart. And it's this safe place where we don't have to worry that 20 years from now when their kids leave the house, we want to at least believe that they have the tools to yeah. deal with that. Yeah, which maybe I watch too much true crime or like whatever, but like someone's having a midlife crisis and having an affair or whatever the hell, right? But no, I, I actually think you're totally right. And you're helping me as a reader, certainly understand my own reading preferences. Because as you were talking, I was thinking of Kit Roach's Beyond series. I love that series so much, like so, so much. And it reminded me of my favorite relationships in that series are almost all either second chance romances 
or they are various configurations because Kit Rocha loves the polyamory, which is why I love Kit Rocha. Various configurations of relationships that have not worked as couples before, but work as either a triad or a whatever you call four people together. My brain is here and not there. Is it a diet? So what is four? Quad. Oh, duh. (laughs) Duh. So whether it is a triad or a quad. So all of my favorite relationships in that series are like people who have tried this before figuring it out. But then... You can cut the spoiler out if you decide to and post. There is this long-standing relationship that exists in the first book, and it's only ever in the background. It's quite lovely. The male main character dies in the very last book. And it is heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking. And I remember when I got there, I literally cried. And mind you, this char- these ch- characters, and they have a child, are only ever in the background. I can barely remember their names at this point. And when he died, I literally cried. And the reason I love it, that's an HEA for me. That's an HEA. They spend something like 12 books together in the background. Every, almost every person in the series looks at them as the kind of love they are trying to achieve. They are like loving and protective and they talk a lot about how they have grown together and how they're different before. Like this is all coming from other people's perception of them. And when he dies, one, it feels like hilariously the only significant death. Like the other people could have died and they would have hurt, but somehow that is the death that hits the hardest. <laughs> like, I, I enjoy your use of hilariously in that context. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have a terrible sense of humor. But <laughs> Yeah, but it it is I real I realized after I, you know, dried my eyes or whatever and had a glass of wine that it's kind of the only death that can hit in that particular way because they are not the main characters. They are not the people who you have actively invested in over the series. You have like everyone else passively invested in them and so they feel permanent. And when you realize that they aren't permanent, you have to sort of, at least I had to sort of get to this point where I was like, oh, but wasn't that such a lovely relationship to watch over the course of this series? And then to know, again, the historian in me that they have a child. And so this new world that this man has died to help create, his daughter gets to inhabit it. Like, like that's how my brain works for history. And so I, I definitely take that baggage into a romance. Like, that's what I'm interested in. Yeah, and I think, like, let's just be honest. Most people don't spend as much time sitting down and thinking, like, why do I deeply love the romance no. genre? Like, no. me for sure, and probably you also. I do think that this is really the sort of, like, when readers react to character deaths or things happening to characters that are beloved or mm-hmm. relationships that are beloved, you want to know why? Because you have messed with the illusion of resolution, which yeah. is why readers are here. I agree. And I, I, I can respect that. Yeah, I, I can absolutely respect that. It, it's not what I care about, but I absolutely, <laughs> personally, I mean, I, I do believe that you need to have an HFN or an HEA for a romance. I do believe that. Mm-hmm. And I think I've said this before. I'm absolutely fascinated by romance authors who are willing to write a character death of one of the main couples in the in the book or one of the main relationships in the book. I'm never going to do that because I don't like conflict and I don't I don't really like sad things. 
<laughs> but I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated um, by that. And it can be beautiful in, in its own right. Okay, so let's talk about Blind Date with a Book Boyfriend by Lucy Eden, who we don't always say full disclosure on this podcast. Just assume that most people are recommending books by people they know and like anyways. But you are, full disclosure, friends with Lucy Eden. Can you please tell me and listeners about what we should know about Lucy Eden and what we should know about this book? So Blind Date with a Book Boyfriend is a novella about a young woman in Southern California for a job interview who ends up at a romance bookstore, which is very obviously modeled after the Rip Bodice, Mm -hmm. who meets a man there and they sort of spend this kind of lovely day together and then discover that they have a connection (laughs) that might make the budding romance a bit complicated. And so the thing to know about Lucy Eden, there are many things. Here's the one that is hilarious about this. She decided to write this book after she scheduled a book signing at the Rift Bodice, and she thought it would be a great kind of freebie for her fans to encourage them to either come to the signing and meet her or buy her books from the the Rift Bodice. And so she wrote this book in, I think, 22 days, or this novella in 22 days. Wow. <laughs> and she talked to another friend of ours, Zida Polanco, who lives in the area, essentially interviewed her or interrogated her, depending on your, <laughs> depending on, I don't know how that conversation went about what the area is like and things that they could do. And she wrote this just as a freebie for, so anyone who, you know, pre-ordered her books would get this. And then there was such demand and there was such good response to it that she decided to sell it. She is an author, a self-published author who has like 8,000 things on the go literally at every moment. If you sign up for her newsletter, you will realize quickly that it's basically a magazine that is masquerading as a newsletter. She's putting literally everyone to shame. Not me, because my newsletter is, you know, barely there. (laughs) It is beautiful and like really in depth and there's always like really good book recommendations. I don't know when this is coming out, but her May newsletter literally just dropped yesterday. And she actually for two newsletters in a row, she had interviews with romance novel cover models. Oh, cool. Uh, Yeah. So one of them, I don't remember their names, but it was the model for one of her books called Cherishing the Goddess. And then today or May's cover model is on the cover of Sierra Simone's Harvest of Size. Last month, she also had a short story by Lydia San Andres. It is a romance magazine, essentially, that she that is has the nerve to masquerade as a, a you know puny newsletter. Just like She's a thing she does on the side, in addition <laughs> yeah. to you know creating books to sell and probably you know other things in her life too. Right, I'm a self-published author, but I really, really adore the business acumen of a lot of self-published authors and indie authors. And she's probably one of the ones who has a really great mind for how to market her books, but also how to sort of build a fan base. I think literally this sort of novella that was supposed to be a freebie, which I think is a really sort of lovely, satisfying romance, was just a thought she had. And in less than a month, she wrote it and, you know, published it. And so I think you you basically answered this question in what you have already said, but why do you think this is a romance novel worth reading? So what I haven't said is that I adore those before movies, like before, what is it? Before sunrise and before midnight or I don't know, whatever with Ethan Hawke and Julie Delby. I love those movies. I mean, if you haven't seen them, you should. So I love the kinds of stories that are like, you know, 
people spending this lovely unexpected day together. Jody Slaughter has a book like that called Just One Night or yeah, just one just one more. Is that the Valentine's Day one? Yeah. Yeah. It's just one more. And it's the same kind of thing where you just chance encounter and you spend, you know, a few hours and in Jody's book a few hours more with people who you this person you didn't expect. Those always feel very real to me in in ways that maybe other romances don't. Mm-hmm. Um, they also work really well at the novella level than they do at the novel level. And I love romance novellas. So there's that. I also love what I, what I love about Blind Date with a Book Boyfriend is that it, it kind of operates as a meta romance. So there is something so satisfying for a romance reader to read about romance readers and kind of see that conversation that the characters are having with one another about books they like or about how this is kind of like a romance, this thing they're doing where they're like, you know, doing karaoke in a strange bar or whatever it is. In this case, they're at like this cafeteria (laughs) sort of themed restaurant. And there are some really cool authors who've done that. Another that springs to mind is also Jack Harbin's Meet Cute Club, which is, again, the same thing, like romance readers kind of having their own romance and seeing how that is different or similar, right, to romances they love. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was a quote from it. And oh, gosh, I always forget. It's Mike slash Micah and what's the female main character? Jordan. 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 Yeah. I forget names, so. Sorry. Yeah. I know. Welcome to my life. I'm like, the, <laughs> the people. So th- this is a line that I think is very, like, self-aware. It's, it's funny, but it's meta. Mm-hmm. If we were in a movie, it would be one of those shots where they put the camera on one of those circular train track thingies. A song like Kiss Me by Sixpence None the Richer would play, and digital fireflies would be added in post-production. If the crowd's reaction was any indication, Pony by Genuine would have been a more accurate (laughs) song choice. A chorus of howls and whistles surrounded us with cries of, get a room, you two, and someone definitely said, they are gonna fuck, making us (laughs) laugh so hard that we broke our kiss. So the other thing about this book is that it's a true rom-com. It is great. It's really funny. Yeah. And the the meta romance stuff, there's the ripped bodice. So the ripped bodice does this thing where it's like a blind date with a book boyfriend where they have a book that is wrapped and there's like a coy description of what the book is about and you buy it and then you don't discover what book you've purchased until you, you know, buy it and open it up. So then obviously here it's <laughs> that she has met this man who <laughs> she doesn't discover it owns the company she's interviewing at. And yes. so she has spoiler the band-aid and had sex. So <laughs> Yeah. Well and right, so it's so it's meta on that level and then but then also like as a romance reader, they're reading the book descriptions and I'm like, I know what book it is. I know what book that is, yeah. <laughs> which is so fun. It has a bibliography, which I have yes. just told you I love. <laughs> Yes. Katrina Jackson. Dr. Katrina Jackson is... I'm going to call you Dr. Katrina Jackson. Like, I know that's, like, not your doctor name, but, like, can I do that? Yeah. Tasha Harrison does it, too. It's such a smart book that is so funny and so... And I think... You know why I think I like it? Why I also... I like books like this, too. But certainly why I like this book is, like, we... 
all, whether we are like lifelong romance readers or not, probably had that moment where we thought, this is this like really monumental time in my life. Like I'm going to college for the first time or I'm in a new, oh my God, the first time I went to London, I just thought I was going to meet like the love of my life around every corner, like mess. But we have these like moments where our lives could potentially change. And we imagine if we're single or we're looking to date, that this is when we'll meet the love of our lives and we'll have like this rom-com moment. And this like just sort of feeds into that and it feels like a sort of a, a, a kind of warm hug. And I love rom-com movies. And this strikes this really great balance between the things I love in rom-coms and the things I love in romantic books. So, And so to talk for a moment about, so it's a novella, it's, I looked it up, it's half the length of a Duke by default as a, <laughs> this is, this is my new measurement. Like how many Dukes by default is it? <laughs> It's not like super short, but it's an, it's definitely a novella. And, you know, what you were talking about, how it's like this monumental day. And I was thinking about how telling a story, telling a romance, a story of a courtship, as we were talking about earlier, how that story changes. If you believe that they have to have a happily ever after at the end, yeah. how, how do you do that quickly? Yeah. And satisfyingly, you know? Yeah. And I know that a lot of romance authors think the best way to write a, a romance novella is to have the characters already know each other. Because you can get past some of that getting to know you. Like, and I are do, you a serial killer type question? <laughs> right. And I do tend to believe in that. I believe in that as a writer, right? Although I've written romance novellas that are not like that. But what I love here is that what Lucy is doing is leaning into that you can actually get to know someone, not well, but you can get to know them actually pretty well if you are sort of kind of bearing yourself open, right? Which is actually why that sort of running gag of could you be a serial killer is hilarious because I don't know anyone in this day and age who wouldn't ask a stranger who just started talking to them in a strange place and wouldn't seem to leave, <laughs> like if they weren't a serial killer. But also it, it can kind of make the danger of interacting with a new person bear and then you can see how they react right so in this case mike is like no i'm not but like, yeah only understand why you think that and then he's sort of he's really sort of conscious about once they leave the bookstore that's not the robotist but is the robotist but he's really conscious of her safety in space yeah and so yeah there is this way that if you lean into these are two strangers but these are two strangers who in his case, he really wants to get to know Jordan. And in Jordan's case, she is almost testing out the possibilities for this new phase in her life. Like, what could it be like to live in this new place? Like, maybe she can get to know the area, but also she can take her mind off of her nerves. So there is this way she, Lucy is leaning into the the uncomfortableness of, of meeting a stranger and then playing it for laughs that are, I think, in all of her books, it's a little bit layered, too, which is really nice. And let's be honest, just because you've known someone for years doesn't mean you don't know that they're a serial killer. Right? I would absolutely, if any of my exes came into my lives, I would assume there is a manhunt happening for them in another part of the country. That happens a lot. <laughs> I mean, mostly in romance novels, but... Right. So... This book also subverts the billionaire trope. I don't I don't know if he's like a billionaire, but he's like at least a, a multimillionaire. And what I will say about how this is a subversion of it, like where there's there is an aspect of it that's like fun and fantasy, 
with mm-hmm. kind of like what you can add to the story if you have somebody who basically has like unlimited wealth and you know options yeah. in some ways i think this book does a really good job of acknowledging privilege so at one point she like jokingly calls him like a tech prodigy or something and he says i'm not a tech prodigy genius i'm a guy with a knack for computers and an expensive education who had a good idea and parents that could give him 250 grand to start a company yeah yeah i look i i don't I don't read a lot of billionaire romances, but I do love billionaire romances. And I love ones that are like this. Like I think Lucy Eden does this um, in this book and actually in others where she's really transparent about privilege, but in this really cavalier way, right? Mm -hmm. Where it doesn't have to be, like I think sometimes people write billionaires and they're like tortured. They're like, you know, pretending to be poor or they're like, like, you know, sort of operating in the shadows, like, and they're not really confronting their privilege. And she's sort of like, no, like, here we are. Like, you know, this is a thing that doesn't have to be a, it, it doesn't make Mike mysterious. It is just a part of who he is. And he understands, right, that he has privileges that other people don't. Um, I think Alyssa Cole does this certainly in uh, Princess in Theory, where you sort of see to be so, he is actually living like he's poor. But when he is exposed, there is that really sort of great confrontation between him and Letty, where she's just sort of like, Yo, what the hell are you doing? And he, you know, has to sort of account for that he's deceiving her, right, in a way that I think is really transparent. Other people do that as well. But I think it's really great to have people writing about people with privilege who are willing to call it out as such, right? Yeah. You know, this just called to mind this random contemporary romance. Sorry, it's not random. It was called (laughs) Man at Work. And in the show notes, I will have a link to this book. It's a contemporary, but it's, like, older. And there was, like, this whole plot where, like, the really privileged, like, white guy hero is, like, slumming it as a construction work. Slumming it. That's in air quotes. <laughs> as a construction worker. And she comes from a a poor a poorer or, like, less affluent family and, like, has become a lawyer and really worked hard to, like, get to that point. But, but like, her family thinks that she's, like, too fancy for them or whatever. But there's, like, this whole thing where he, like, places himself in this position of being a victim. Like, you don't get what it's like to, like, live in a crappy apartment. And, like, she finds out that he's, like, this rich guy, like, pretending. And the confrontation in that is so delicious where it's like, yeah, I'm just thinking I want to reread that book because I'm actually really curious rereading it now if if I would have the same feeling about it but I I feel like it's like that rare romance novel in like a contemporary setting where white people are kind of like confronting their privilege and having a discussion about it that's interesting yeah so there's so the the final book in Kate Roach's Beyond series as you were talking it reminded me that there are so many ways that you can kind of confront privilege right and I love that book for so many reasons. I think he's the only black male main character, black hero in that series. And he is positioned as the richest and the most powerful man in essentially the world they've created. So they've created this world where like everyone is kind of hard scrapple. And then, you know, hard scrapple is not a thing because hard scrapple is something different. Scrabble? <laughs> hard scrapple. Hard snapple? hard they're they're sort of like hard scrabble like kind of outlaws right Mm -hmm. and then his name is Ryder he kind of strolls in the picture in my head is everyone else in the series is dressing like biker gang he strolls in in a suit 
And he is like very above it all. And part of what I love about that book is there's this moment in the book where he sort of points out that he is the most uh, rich and powerful. And yet, because he's black, even in this post-apocalyptic world, people treat him in a certain way, right? Mm -hmm. In a way that they don't have to confront, even though they are confronting other things. And so, yeah, there are sometimes in these billionaire romances, this sort of like lovely interplay of people who understand various kinds of privileges and are willing to call it out, which is what Mike does in this, in this novella. And then people, that sort of lovely moment where they get called out, and you get that confrontation that is so, you're right, it's delicious. It's like amazing. Yeah. This book does stuff like that so economically. Like, yeah. Like, there's like a, you know, a, a black moment where, you know, something has not been communicated and you think that this is going to like drive them apart. But it was done well where. He tried to communicate it. She shut him down. So it's forgivable, I think. And then they actually talk about it. Like, then. I was going to say, I, I love a bit of a miscommunication or a sort of, you know, people putting off difficult conversations because I'm definitely that person. And it can be great for attention. But what I love in this book, because it's all about, like, economical is really the word, right? This book is not that long. It is a novella. And so there isn't a, a lot of time for that miscommunication to go on. And it goes on, I think, the perfect amount of time for the length of the book. And when it comes up, sometimes you read romances that are unsatisfying because people don't have real conversations, right? They sort of tiptoe around the issue. Or, in, in my opinion, your conversations are a little too real and it feels uncomfortable. <laughs> And this is a lovely balance of they are having a real conversation that people in their position, billionaire or not, would have to have about how you negotiate a new relationship with conflicts or whatever. And they're very mature, both of them, about it all. I like romances that feel real, even if there's a bit of fantasy. And this is kind of that. Yeah, there was this one moment. Like, I'm just I'm just amazed at these parts, these little parts. I just spit all over my microphone. <laughs> Where at one point she like falls like they're they're yeah. sensibly taking an Uber and she falls asleep and he goes and gets some food and like brings it back in the car. And I was like, he like left her in like an Uber right. asleep. And I was a bit like I was like, oh, that seems like a little bit of like a ooh, I don't know about that. And then later it's revealed that it was his driver and not an Uber driver. So somebody that he trusts and has an existing relationship with. And he's like, you don't think I'd like ever leave you asleep in an, an Uber? And I'm like, oh, thank you for resolving that for me. Right. And it's that I feel like if you are going to write, I mean, there is, again, all romance books are fantasies in some way, shape or another. Right. So billionaires are just a kind of extension of that. Mm -hmm. But if you're going to have this fantastical character who has all the money in the world and can do whatever, right? Like, why wouldn't you, one, call that out, but also do so in a way where you can also then, as she does in that scene, because I was thinking of that scene when we started talking, where he can further demonstrate his care for her, right? Like, yes. of course he wouldn't leave her in an Uber, you know, tipsy and, and asleep. And he has the financial ability not to have to do that. Mm -hmm. Right. But then also it explains why he wasn't like, and this is my driver. 
Right. Because that hadn't been revealed yet. And so, like, it's right. there's, like, a little bit of, like, suspense. There's a teeny-weeny little bit of suspense where you're like, oh, I don't know about that, Mike. Yeah. And Mike is a cinnamon roll, too. So it only sort of solidifies once you realize what he's done and why it sort of solidifies the thing you love. The thing I love about cinnamon rolls is that they are like uber careful, right? They are they're the ones who have thought through all the things, even if in like in this case, you don't know their thought process. They're like, oh, he's so thoughtful. Like he's so like wonderful to her. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Yeah. And they and they have an explicit conversation. This is another sort of like one of those meta romance things. She's like, what kind of romance hero are you <laughs> as getting to know him? And and I mean, it, we, if we haven't said this already, the reason he is in a romance novel bookstore is because he reads romance. And it was it was something he did with his sister who we've had so many spoilers in this. His sister who had passed away. <laughs> Yeah, but like it was something that like so not only did was there like a story behind it, but like he was still doing it. So then it's like something they share. It's just like so lovely. They're lovely people. This is one of those books where like I was like I would like to be friends with these people. I don't always feel like that. Yeah, no, I don't always feel like that, and I think part of why I really like not just because my friend we're friends because I really like her books, but part of why I really like Lucy Eden's books is partially because I like rom-com movies and I, it's harder to find actual rom-com books, in my opinion. And she's one of a very few authors who I think really managed to write, you know, the comedy part of the rom-com really well. I think having read some of her other books, part of the reason she's able to do that is because she writes really realistic characters. Mm -hmm. So they're characters who behave like me, who are absolutely like, sir, why are you talking to me in this bookstore when I'm just trying to buy a book? Please go away. Slash, are you a serial killer? Like, these are things I would absolutely do. But even at the end, near the climax, you know, she's there for a job interview and it's in Southern California, you know, it's tech. So there are food trucks <laughs> outside and she gets beignets. And then when they meet up again, she's covered in powdered sugar. And I'm like, wow, okay, just call me out in book form. Like I'm the kind of person who's going to have something on my mouth or something on my clothes, right? Because it's like, well, I'm a train wreck, right? So there is this sort of moment where you get to, and he, and, and when he calls it out, it is so romantic. He's like, oh, so it's beignet day. <laughs> right. There's no judgment. He's like, oh, darn it. I miss, I miss the beignets. <laughs> so there is just this like really sort of the realism of it. Cause I'm the, I'm a sarcastic person, but I tend to think that there are funny things in even the darkest sort of moments. Yeah. And it, that is part of my sort of coping strategy and has been since I was a kid. And so there is something really sort of lovely about reading a rom-com or finding authors who are able to write about things that aren't, always the brightest I certainly don't want to read trauma but they aren't the brightest but they are able the characters seem to approach like I think Mike and Jordan absolutely approach life more sort of like with open arms and more willing to see the humor in life I find that part of it really great right mm -hmm. and it makes sense for these two characters to be like this in this story because <laughs> you know given the setup if they were not those type of people, the book would have ended with her being like, please get away from me, sir. And the manager of the bookstore escorting him out for making a customer uncomfortable. Right. Or even, you're right. Or if it didn't end there, if they were different kinds of characters, it would have ended when they are trying to negotiate 
if she can even like, for, for instance, accept a job at his company, right? Because mm-hmm. there are mm-hmm. absolutely characters, and there's no judgment here, who would choose their dream job in this case over a relationship, and that would be perfectly fine. That wouldn't have worked for this story. Mm-hmm. So yeah, she she writes characters who. I mean, obviously they fit in the story, but when you're writing, I think, a novella, especially without a lot of conflict, you want to write characters who are, in my opinion, look, I'm not giving anyone a writing lesson, but the sort of benefit uh, of writing characters with very specific sort of personality traits that make it possible, like, cannot be overstated. And sometimes, like, for people who like to write a lot of angst, you need that very specific kind of character, personality trait, and and thankfully that's not what this is yeah right was there anything else you wanted to say about this lovely little bite-sized novella so part of the reason I recommended this when you or when you said you want to talk about this I was like yeah let's do it is because this is a really hard reading time for me as it is for lots of people and it is harder for me to read full novels and it's harder for me right now to read things with a lot of angst and a lot of politics or, you know, all of that. And so what what I love about this book in particular is partially because it's a meta-romance, it feels like a bit of a, a hug. Mm-hmm. So it is sort of like, you know, these characters are sinking into romance for a lot of the reasons we are, right? That we're looking for a bit of an escape, which is how they end up at the store and they meet. And so it is so nice, and I really appreciate what Lucy is able to do here with sort of writing a world that feels very similar to the one we're in in some ways and very not similar to the one we're in in really sort of ways that I I appreciate. And then it, it actually made me laugh, which for me, especially when I'm really depressed, it is nice to laugh. Don't tell her that I gave her any of these compliments. Mm-hmm. Lucy, um, don't listen to this. Don't listen to this because I do not believe in giving compliments. I'm sarcastic. Don't worry. But yeah, I just I just love this book. Yeah, I mean, same. I just read it, you know, in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. And it was delightful. And I think definitely, obviously, this was written before the pandemic. But it is like, really timely in the sense that it is a really great thing to read right now. Yeah. Yeah, very lovely. So speaking of novellas, actually is, I was going to say, is Office Hours a novella? It's not. This is not a conversation anyone else has to care about with me, but everyone thinks my books, all of my books are novellas, and they're not. They're just like three quarters of a Duke by default. (laughs) This book is 70,000 words. So everyone, whenever- Office Hours is? Yeah, it is. Office Hours is a novel. Okay, well, so Office Hours- is a novel that you recently released and I very much enjoyed. I think despite the fact that there is some academic angst in it, the romance is pretty angst-free. So that's that's something I think people should go read if they're looking for something something fun to read right now. What else have you been up to on the writing front? I just published another, an actual novella called Beautiful and Dirty, which is the sort of entry point in a mafia series that I'm trying to write because it's a pandemic and I'm just writing whatever I want right now. Why not? (laughs) Why not? 
I'm also working on a whole bunch of different projects, but the one that feels very timely right now and is my happy place at the moment is a historical romance novel um, that we talked about the first time <laughs> I was here. I finally picked it back up again, actually because of Lucy Eden. I told her my idea and she said, so you just need to finish that. So I'm actively working on a historical romance novel. And I'm also trying to get back into the academic work that I'm doing about Black romance. Yeah. Awesome. Well, people can go find you on Twitter, mostly, at Katrina Jacks. Yep. Okay, cool. Just, I mean, like, search for Katrina Jackson. Like 8,000 Katrina Jackson. Just just look at what I've retweeted recently. You'll find her. (laughs) Thanks so much for being here today. Always. You can come every week. Uh, Every month. (laughs) Thanks for listening to episode 49 of Shelf Love. Thank you to Katrina, who now says that she is spending less time on Twitter, so you'll just have to go buy one of her books to see what is going on in her brilliant mind. Her latest, Beautiful and Dirty, is available now. All of the details for this episode can be found on shelflovepodcast.com, including a transcript for this episode. Look for episode 49. Transcripts are new, and I hope to have them available for all episodes going forward, and I will be working my way backward into the back episodes as well. Thanks for joining me today. If you have any thoughts on the show, I would love for you to reach out to me. You can always send an email to andrea at shelflovepodcast.com. Black Lives Matter. Stay safe, stay mad, and keep reading romance. <laughs>